haven. So you can imagine there were a lot of trees in my neighborhood, and so there was a lot of empty lots, and there was a lot of places for little kids to go and build forts, and that's what we did. We built forts in every little empty lot we could find around the area. And me and my best friend built this fort one time, and we called it Fort Sassafras. And Fort Sassafras was one of the best forts that we ever built. Uh, it had a, like a, a roof over top of it, and we put leaves on top of the roof, and we could crawl inside of there and do the little things that you do as little kids. And uh, one day, the neighborhood bully came by, and he saw that we had built this fort, and he decided he wanted to do something about it. And so while we were away, uh, Michael, this guy, I, I guess I shouldn't say his name, but anyhow, this fella, the neighborhood bully, he went in there, and he tore the roof off of our fort, and he kicked it all over the place, and we were really upset about this. So me and my buddy Drew, we went and got some, uh, some mud, and we formed those into dirt bombs, and we let those dirt bombs sit out in the sun and get dry. And when Michael came riding by on his bicycle, we were in the woods, perched, ready for him. We started throwing those dirt bombs at Michael, and he went riding on down the road yelling at us. And that's kind of how you do when you're kids, right? Uh, well, the Bible has something to talk about. Well, when somebody, what do you do when somebody hurts you? What do you do when somebody really you know, sticks the knife in, this, in your side and, and really gives you a hard time? How do you respond in those sorts of situations in life when it's not just a little Fort Sassafras that got hurt, but it was somebody and their feelings and real, uh, real people involved there. So uh, the scripture is going to speak to us today from Romans chapter 12. We're in a series in the book of Romans. Um, we're going to be reading Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 17. If you would, stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Again, this is the Bible um, telling us or prescribing for us how we are to respond when life hurts us. Here we go, Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, so I want to give you my outline for today, and uh, it, we kind of dance around in these verses a little bit. But what the scriptures are saying is it's talking to us what it is that we should respond it's telling us why uh, we should respond the way the Bible is prescribing. And then finally, the Bible tells us how it is that we can pull this off. Because uh, it's one thing for the Bible says that we're not supposed to respond evil for evil uh, and to tell us why we're supposed to do that. But at the end of the day, how am I supposed to respond this way, especially when my sinful nature is working its way on the inside of me? How do I, how do I respond to the way the Bible is telling? So that's kind of my outline for today. Let's start with the what question. What is God telling me to do as a believer in Jesus Christ in terms of how I respond to people who have hurt me. The Bible gives us three steps, a three-part command, uh, beginning at verse 17. It says, repay no one evil for evil. The NASB renders that. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And then in verse 19, again, it says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. And the NASB says, never take your own revenge. Now, this same theme is repeated all throughout the scriptures. For example, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Friends, the scripture is very clear. No matter who has hurt you, no matter how badly they have hurt you, no matter how often they have hurt you, revenge is not one of the above selections. 
Furthermore, God's instructions don't stop there. That's kind of the God saying, this is what I don't want you to do. Don't respond this way. But the Bible says, hey, here's the positive way that we respond in those situations. Verse 20, to the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. The point is not just to give somebody food and water and bare necessities of life, but to actually bless that person to do something good for that person who has hurt you to return good for their evil. Not returning evil for evil, that's only half of the ballgame that the Bible describes here. The other half of the game is that we actually respond with a blessing for that person. And the Lord gives us this very same instruction over in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So number one, do not repay evil for evil. Number two is to respond with kindness and blessing to those people who have hurt us. Again, this is, answers the what question of what is it that we're, how are we supposed to respond. And then, verse, uh, and then finally, number three, what kind of response does God expect from us toward those who have hurt us? Number three is we should seek peace in those situations. God's call for us as Christians is to seek peace with other people. Not ma- malice, not revenge, not retaliation, but peace. Not uh, vindictiveness, not bitterness, not resentment, again, but peace. He says in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, I love that phrase, if possible, because what that tells me is that God is a realist. Isn't that wonderful? God understands that sometimes, in some certain circumstances, peace cannot be achieved. Because if, what, if to achieve peace means that you have to compromise on your principles, that you have to compromise on your moral standards, then peace cannot be achieved in that situation. For example, if Christine Nunez, who's the president of the NOW organization, uh, in order for the two of us to achieve peace, that I have to come around to her point of view on the issue of abortion, then I can't have peace with her. I have to have war with her. Because if me, going to, if me leaving behind the biblical uh, perspective on that issue means if that's the only way that peace can be achieved, then, then there's war. Uh, being a realist, God also says, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, God understands that it takes two people to tango, that if the other person, right, as far as it is depends on you, but if the other person's not interested in having peace, again, God understands, look, peace cannot be achieved in the situation. It's not possible. This reminds me of David and Saul in the Old Testament. David wanted peace between he and Saul. He did everything he could do to try gestures of goodwill to show Saul. I mean, Saul came into the cave where David was and David could have and took a nap. David could have killed him right then and there. But David's made so many gestures to say, look, I want peace between the two of us. But Saul was not interested. And in that situation, um, the apostle or, or David could not have peace. Uh, we have to be willing to take the initiative to press for peace, and only when that peace is unachievable, only then can we throw our hands up in the air and say that I gave it my best. The question for us is, did I really give it my best? So let's summarize. What does God tell us to do as Christians with someone who has hurt us? Number one, never return evil for evil. That's the negative side of it. Number two, here's the positive side, return good for their evil instead. And finally, number three, If it's possible, if it's at all possible, go out of your way to achieve peace in that relationship. And even if you cannot, you and I as Christians can always do steps one and two because those steps aren't dependent on how the other person responds or where they're at, where their heart is. Now, the second part of our outline is why. Why should I respond this way uh, to somebody who has hurt me? 
Um, and the first reason that we find, there's two reasons. The first reason we find is in verse 17. Uh, Paul writes, by treating people this way, we present what is honorable in the sight of all. And then he says again in verse 21, God says, do not be overcome by other people's evil. Don't let that get to you. Don't let that burn and churn on the inside of you uh, so that you end up carrying out revenge and disgracing yourself and disgracing the Lord Jesus and discrediting your testimony before a watching world. Don't do that. But instead, he says, verse 21, overcome evil with good. That is, fight evil by harming your enemy with kindness. Uh, some of you may remember the statement that you kill them with kindness, right? Now, is this the way that the world operates? <laughs> not at all. Uh, this is not the way the world operates at all. The world system says revenge is sweet. I mean, in so many of the movies that we see, what do we see there? We see somebody getting their pound of flesh. We see revenge being taken out in the human mind and the human uh, simple nature says, yes, that's the right thing. That's justice. But when you and I come along and react differently than that, when we react biblically in certain situations where somebody's hurt us, it gets the world's attention. And it gives us a platform from which to then talk about Jesus Christ. Friends, responding the way the Bible is telling us to respond creates credibility uh, in the eyes of a watching world. I love the quote from the ancient philosopher Socrates. Socrates said this. Here's a, uh, you can see the little picture of him there. We ought not to retaliate evil for evil to anyone, regardless of what we may have suffered from them. But then he went on to say this. He said, this opinion has never been held and never will be held by a considerable number of people. What Socrates is saying, he's recognizing that this is not the way the world system works. Uh, the world system is out for revenge. The world system is out for, uh, to get their pound of flesh. Um, and so that's the way the world looks at things. But when we as Christians come along and do live this way, it blows people's minds. And it's for this reason that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15 that this kind of response is one of the ways that we can silence, silence the, uh, the ignorance of foolish people. You say, Gordon, that's fine. I mean, I agree with what the Bible saying here. It sounds like a really good way to deal with people who have, who have hurt me. Um, and I want to be a good witness for Christ. But what I'm asking is, what about justice? They did me wrong. I mean, when, when is my day in court? When is, my op, when, when is justice ever going to be uh, issued down to these people? What about that? How does that factor in? Well, that's a really good question, and God gives us a second reason why we should return good for evil, and it's right there in verse 19. Uh, it answers the problem of justice. Paul writes, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for, and here's why I say that, because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now in the Greek, it literally really reads, vengeance is, uh, belongs to me. Vengeance belongs to me. That is, vengeance does not belong to you. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He says it's mine to deal with this. That means that vengeance and justice are the prerogatives of God on a personal level. They are not yours. And we are not talking here about society punishing criminals. That is not at all what's in view. What is in view is us personally taking out our pound of flesh in those types of situations. And rather, we, that belongs to God. And God makes sure that in the cosmic scheme of things, that what goes around comes around. God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
Folks, everybody likes justice as long as it's justice is on their side. Um, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that every man is right in his own eyes. Have you ever listened to two people um, argue, a husband and a wife? You ever listen to two people in conflict, an employer and employee? You ever listen to two people um, have, this, have a fight, a brother and a sister? And you only listen to one side of that story. You only listen to one of those people's perspectives. You'll come out of that conversation with them going, well, yeah, they're right, and that other person's just terrible. I mean, they're awful. But what does wisdom say? Wisdom says there are always two sides to every story. You see, friends, it is possible that in situations where we believe that the other person deserves retribution and revenge, it may be that a third party, God in this case, who is not so personally involved that they might see it differently than us. God is the only one in the universe, friends, who truly knows both sides of the story. He sees the motives of all of our hearts. And God is the only one capable of determining wrath in that situation, whether it's deserved or not. And that's why God tells us in verse 19 to return good for evil, to leave the vengeance stuff with him. We don't need to worry about it because if wrath and if punishment and if justice is really deserved by that other person the way that we think, God says, I will see to it. I'll do it. I will, he says, repay. And that's why he instructs us in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, in the ancient Hebrew, um, when they heard the concept of burning coals, it was referring to God's wrath. It was referring to God's judgment. And so the Bible is telling us here, prescribing us here, that if we rather than return evil for evil, but rather return good and blessing for evil, then we're giving the revenge, we're giving the justice into God's hands. You follow that? Uh -huh. All right. I know it was, don't win a late game last night, come on now. Um, <clears throat> what God is saying is if we move in and we take our own revenge, even if the revenge is justified, God is not going to do anything about it that we've already taken our revenge, and so now it's over. God's like, well, you already did what, 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 you thought needed to be done, so I'm now out of this. And so we've taken his place. But if we'll back off and leave it to God and instead return good for evil, then if there are hot coals of punishment that are deserved, God will see to it and he will do a far better job, friends, than you or I could ever do. I like what A.W. Tozer said. He said, whoever defends himself will have himself as his defense and he will have nobody else. But let him, who let him live defenselessly before the Lord, and he will have as his defender no less than Almighty God himself. All right, let's summarize. Why does God want for me never to return evil for evil, but rather to return good? Because number one, it is a marvelous opportunity for a watching world to become curious about Jesus Christ. And secondly, because God himself promises to settle our accounts with people if there's anything that has gone around, God will make sure that it comes back around. All right, so that takes us to our third and final point this morning. And this third and final point on how answers our most important question, what difference does all this make to your life and mine? You say, Gordon, you know, I, I understand what God's saying here. I see how he's prescribing for me to respond in certain situations where I've been hurt, when somebody's offended me, hurt my children, uh, hurt my business, whatever it may be. Uh, slighted me in some way. I, I see how God's, or why I would do that as well. 
Um, but how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to pull this off? I, I'm dealing with sinful nature self on the inside that's burning and turning and wanting me to respond in these other ways. So could you put some handles on this so I can see how it is that I'm supposed to respond and, and to be able to allow this thing to play, out, play itself out? Absolutely, let's do that. The key comes uh, to answering the question of how in verse 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. In some translations it says, give room for the wrath of God. In other words, stand to the side and be a spectator, passively involved. Let God handle it. Put it in his hands. Let him handle it. Um, another way of putting it, and I think a practical way of putting it, is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an, an example so that you might follow in his steps. And here's what Jesus' example of how to respond to us is. He says, when he was reviled, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, did not say, you better stop talking to me that way. He didn't say, when I get down off his cross, you and I are going to have words. Jesus didn't respond like that at all. He never did. He never returned in kind what was being thrown at him. <clears throat> Rather, he said, when he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When he suffered, he didn't threaten back. Verse 23, but he kept on entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And this is the secret, to keep on entrusting ourselves to a big God who runs a big universe and who is more than capable of handling uh, punishment out to those who deserve it. You say, well, Gordon, how does this work? I mean, how, how do I do this? Well, it looks like this. It looks like saying, Lord, they hurt me. And, and you know, you're the omniscient God of the universe. You know what happened here. And they hurt me. And you saw, that, you saw how that happened. But Lord, I'm entrusting them to you. And they were wrong. And I know that they were wrong. But maybe from their vantage point, maybe they saw this thing differently than I did. And so I'm going to leave it up to you to decide. Lord, it was unfair that I did not get that promotion. Everybody else was off playing golf. I was back at the office helping the business be productive. And Lord, I didn't get the promotion. And I don't see, and I don't see how this could possibly be fair. But if the person who made that call, you know, in their heart felt like this was the right thing to do, God, I'm just going to have to put that in your hands and leave that in your hands and allow for you to issue out justice. Lord, those people were so cruel to me and how they treated me. And, and, and it hurt me deeply. I mean, weren't they, were they not aware? Well, maybe they weren't aware. Maybe they were just somebody who just says things and they, don't, they go on about their day and then I'm left behind just stewing on it for, for days. But Lord, I will place it in your hands. I will leave the vengeance stuff up to you. And then if there is any righteous revenge to be taken, Lord, you are plenty big enough to handle it. You see, we serve a big God, and we serve a living God. And if you have a big God, and you have a living God, then every square inch of this universe, friends, is under his control. There is no rock anyone can hide, crawl under to hide from his justice. God says, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. Uh, I, somebody left on my desk, this has been... I don't know, a year ago, maybe more, 
um, a copy of a Gettysburg magazine. So after church today, you come up and tell me, hey, I was the one that left you that Gettysburg. Uh, it was just like a pamphlet or, or magazine that talked about the Gettysburg battle and the four days of fighting and all the different things that happened in the troop movements and stuff. And so I just happened to pick it up uh, the last couple of weeks and was just reading through it just because I find that stuff interesting. And um, I ran across a guy who was fighting in the Battle of Gettysburg by the name of John B. Gordon. Perhaps that's why it jumped out at me. Um, I don't know if John B. Gordon rings a bell for anybody here, but he was actually a former governor of Georgia, um, and he fought in the Civil War. Um, I have a picture for, of, you, of him on his horse. This is um, an equestrian picture of him riding, and it's actually out on the lawn in Atlanta um, at the Capitol Complex. Um, and there's another picture of him here, too. Um, and he's there in his, his uh, Civil War uh, Confederate dress. Um, he was a, you can see the dates there, he was born and died. Um, he served as a U.S. Senator in 1873, and then for one term, and then he became governor of the state of Georgia, and then he became a U.S. Senator again in 1891. Um, so pretty remarkable uh, career. Uh, he achieved the status of Major General, uh, he was considered one of Robert E. Lee's most trusted uh, generals uh, by the end of the war. Um, and he was fought in many battles uh, during the Civil War, the first of which was the Battle of Sharpsburg, uh, where he was wounded five times uh, in the midst of that battle. He was shot, first of all, through his calf muscle, and then he was shot in his shoulder, and then he was shot in his thigh, and then he was shot, these are all musket balls, in his arm, and then the final blow that kind of knocked him down and out of the battle for the day, he was shot through his left cheek, and into his jaw and blew out part of his jaw. Uh, I mean, this was a hard guy back in the day. I mean, these, these folks were, were manly men, for sure. Um, and so he experienced the pain and the suffering of war as that war rolled on. Um, and he had every motivation to hate the folks that were uh, putting their muzzles in his direction, um, that were wanting to do him harm. And so he had every motivation to want to do maximum harm back to the soldiers on the other side. Um, again, the most famous battle that he fought in was the Battle of Gettysburg. He was a brigadier general at the time, and he commanded um, 2,400 2, men at the Battle of Gettysburg. He was under John Early's command. Um, they, were, they were situated north of Gettysburg, or the city of Gettysburg, at a place that's now called Bar, Barlow's Knoll. I have a picture of that for you here. Um, Barlow's Knoll was named after uh, a Union Brigadier General who was also in command of 2,400 troops um, that were trying to, th over to throw uh, Gordon off of that, that hilltop area. And this guy's name was Brigadier General Francis Barlow, to whom that, that little hilltop is now named. He was the commanding general of the 1st Division of the 11th Corps of the Union Army. Uh, and again, he had the same number of troops under his command as uh, General Gordon had. There were stories of one Confederate commander who was wounded uh, in that battle who severed off his own leg with a penknife. Sorry, he didn't come to church this morning to hear about that. But, uh, I mean, this is just, it's remarkable, uh, the stories of heroism and the stories of just grit uh, that come out of those battles. On the, on the afternoon of the first day of fighting, July 1st, 1863, the 28-year-old Brigadier General John Francis Barlow led his men in a final attempt to try and dislodge Brigadier General Gordon and his 2,400 men from this hilltop. Uh, the Confederate Army uh, ran them back or pushed them back. And in the midst of that final charge, in the midst of that final attempt to dislodge uh, Brigadier General Gordon, uh, Francis 
was, was injured. Francis Barlow was injured. He was shot from his horse. A uh, bullet penetrated through his gut, passed out the other side, uh, knocked him off his horse. He stood up to try and continue in the battle, and he was shot in the back and knocked to the ground. Um, and it looked like things were not going to work out very well for, uh, for Brigadier General um, Barlow. Well, the men retreated from the battlefield. General Barlow was laying there on the ground. Um, General Gordon comes by on his horse, sees him on the ground, appears to be mortally wounded, hops off his horse, gives him some brandy and some water, asks him what he can do to help him uh, in this situation, tends to his physical needs. And uh, Barlow says, well, my wife is actually a nurse, and she's uh, helping the Union Army. Could you send word through the Union lines for my wife to come and attend to me? I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm about to die. Uh, I would like to spend my last moments with her. And so Gordon said, absolutely, and he sent word um, and left the man there under the care of some of his attendants, um, gave him medical care that he could, and then Brigadier General uh, Gordon went off to other fighting. Figured that uh, Barlow had died. Um, after the retreat of the Union Army again, um, they, they just had, didn't see one another. And so to make, and so as the war progressed, it turns out Barlow ended up recovering from his injuries. Um, I don't know if his wife was a really good nurse or he just had a really lucky shot. Whatever it was, he ended up recovering from his injuries. And so Barlow hears over the course of the war, uh, a little bit later on, that a General Gordon had died in the Confederate fighting. And he figured that this was Governor Gordon that had died. Um, well, to make... So, so both men think the other has passed, okay? To make things interesting, Barlow... Uh, the two men go on about their lives. Gordon becomes a U.S. senator, becomes the governor of Georgia, a U.S. senator again. Noel went on to practice law. Twenty years later... They were each attending a dinner party in Washington, D.C., and they were, happened to be seated at the same table, and they were having a conversation. The conversation came up about the Civil War. I fought with the Union. I fought with the Confederacy. And they started exchanging, well, what battles did you fight in? Gettysburg, really. Well, I was at the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, well, tell me a little bit about that. And so in his book, Reminiscences of the Civil War, Major General Gordon goes on to record that conversation, that um, revelation between the two men. As they're, as they're talking, Gen, um, General, uh, he says, General, are you related to the Barlow who was killed at Gettysburg? So this is General Gordon speaking to Barlow and says, are you related to the guy that was killed? Are you like his brother or something like that? Uh, Barlow, is that, was that like a cousin of yours or something? Y'all just share the same last name? And so Barlow says, well, no, I am the man, sir, who was wounded on the battlefield and and General Gordon attended to my needs. And Barlow says, are you telling me that you are related to the Gordon who gave me aid? In other words, are you telling me that like it was your brother or your cousin who came to help me? Because remember, he thinks that General Gordon had died in the battle, or another battle. And Gordon responds, I am the man, sir. Gordon then goes on to say, no words of mine can convey any conception of the emotions awakened by those startling announcements. Nothing short of an actual resurrection from the dead could have amazed either of us more. Thenceforward until his untimely death in 1896, the friendship between us, which was born amidst the thunders of Gettysburg, 
was greatly cherished by both. Now take a moment and think about that. Can you imagine the loss to both of these men had they chosen vengeance or unforgiveness? Friends, there is no bond so tightly forged as that between reconciled enemies. And there is no balm so healing and hopeful as a witness of reconciliation. I wonder how many of us here would admit that there's someone in the wings of our life that we have just been waiting to go off on. Somebody who's hurt us. Maybe it's a boss and we're thinking to ourselves, you just wait till you really need me. And I'll make sure that you feel what you did to me. Maybe it's a neighbor who didn't invite you to a dinner party. And you think, you just wait. I'm going to have a dinner party of my own. I'm going to invite the whole neighborhood out. And you're not going to get an invitation. Or maybe it's a student who embarrassed you at school or who did something to make you feel silly. And you're thinking to yourself, you just wait. I'll embarrass you. I'll get you back. You know, one area that I see people responding this way is toward their parents. Parents who raised them in ways that were unfair. There are people who say, you wait till you get old. You wait till you get rickety and you need me and see if I'm there to help you in your time of need. Or perhaps there's a teacher that didn't grade you very well and you say, you just wait till your performance review uh, comes out at the end of the semester and I'm just going to tear into you. And it, on and on it goes. But friends, there are a lot of people who feel like that because it is so human to feel that way. But what God is doing today is challenging us not to live on a strictly human level, but to tap into the power of the Spirit of God and to take the high road. So when we are standing out there, friends, on the battlefield of life, and it is in our power to dispatch our enemies, the Word of God is instructing us to choose rather to show mercy and blessing and a helping hand Friends, we have no idea who is watching. And we have no idea how things might turn out. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us today from your word. You call us to live above the fray. You call us to live in a way that the world knows not. Lord, may we take the hurt that is done to us and respond in a way that shows mercy and goodness and blessing. Lord, we know that a watching world will sit up at the sight of that and say, there is something honorable here. There is something noble here. What is it? God, we pray that you would give us a platform like that, that you would take the opportunities that are presented to us, perhaps even daily, to respond in a way, God, that is evil for evil, but rather, Lord, to turn that around and respond with good and blessing. Lord, be our strength. Enable us to live this way. We give you this time. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.